Amen. I am so glad you're here joining us, uh, however you're joining us, online or in person. Glad that you are here. Um, we're continuing in our study of 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. Find your way there, and uh, we're going to talk about that in momentarily. But first, let me tell you something that I found really interesting. Did you know that in German, like in the language German, um, the word for candle and heretic are very similar? I was not aware. I read this uh, recently. And uh, I can't speak German. Um, I'm not super good at languages, so I brought audio clips of these. So first we're going to listen to the, this is the German word for candle, okay? So pay attention. Play it. Katze. Did you catch that? You want to try to say it? Okay, good job. I'm very impressed. Now, now we're going to hear the German word for heretic. Play it. Katze. Pretty close, right? You see the confusion that could ensue. Let's hear them like side by side. So uh, play candle. Katze. Heretic. Katze. I can't even tell the difference. <laughs> right? So I was reading a book on church history, and the, the book started with the story of this historian who went to Germany and was in Germany over the Christmas holidays. Uh, and he went into a German shop there, and he went up to the German shopkeeper, and he said to the shopkeeper, I would like to buy some candles. Only he did not say candles. He said heretics, because he's new to German, you know, doesn't speak it very well. He says, I would like to buy some heretics. Now, the German shopkeeper, being very German and not at all helpful, very snidely replies, well, what would you like to do with them? Uh, to which the historian says, I want to burn them for Advent. <laughs> Uh. Question, why is that funny? That is funny for a very dark reason, right? That is funny because there was a time when the church, like Jesus people, would burn people to death for not believing the right things about God. Now, it's been a few years, and I'm glad we can all laugh about it. I'm just kidding. I laughed out loud in my office when I was reading this. I'm genuinely not shaming you for laughing because it is funny, but it is funny for such a tragic reason. It is funny because we all recognize how utterly unhinged we can be as humans when we have disagreements and misunderstandings about God. And the irony of that is we all know what Susie said last week is absolutely true when she started this series, that we all should know that our perception, our understanding of God is somehow imperfect. It is flawed. It is in process. We are not finished. God is still teaching us. God himself is constantly offering, hey, hey, let me give you greater understanding of me. I want you to know who I am. Let me reveal something more to you about me. And yet sometimes when we come across someone who misunderstands something about God that we think they should not, we are incredibly ugly to them. 
Now, we're studying uh, the epistle of 1 John, and the whole reason it was written is this idea that it's easy to misunderstand things about, John, about God, not about John, but about God. And John is the one who's trying to help us with that. He's an old man at this point. He's one of the last surviving people who saw Jesus face to face. And he's trying to lead us to this clearer understanding about, hey, there are some kingdom essentials. That, that, that's what really matters. They're at the center of the faith. <clears throat> and if we just know those things, then we can have better fellowship with God, better fellowship with one another. And what makes this so beautiful is what we see in John is maturity. He's at the end of his life, but he's not old and bitter. The opposite is true. He's mature. He is seasoned. He is focused on what matters the most. And so he puts pen to page, and he writes about really just three subjects in this letter. He writes about Jesus, he writes about this issue of obedience, and he writes about the issue of love. He says, that's the stuff that matters most. And so we're not going linearly through the book of 1 John. We're going to talk about every verse in the whole book, uh, but we're going to do it topically. So the first thing we're going to look at is the issue of Jesus. That's what he's going to talk about. Uh, we're going to look, look at things he says about Jesus for the next three weeks, and I'm super excited about these sermons because what John is going to talk about is heresy. Now, he's not going to use that word. That was a word that wasn't real popular in his day. He's going to use other words that are a little bit more confusing, but this is the issue he's talking about. He is going to say, here are the things that we should believe about Jesus, and here are some things people are saying about Jesus that are not true. They're the opposite of that. They're wrong. They're heresy. And he's not going to say, hey, I want you to go out and find these heretics and burn them. That's what he's going to say. The church started doing that years after John had died, right? So uh, that's not what he's encouraging. He's going to suggest something else that will help us avoid those sorts of mistakes. He is going to tell us that there is a small list, a handful of things that we need to hold on to very tightly. And outside of that list, like we should be very humble and gentle and kind about the rest. What's going to surprise us about John is just how short his list is. I would submit to you it's probably a lot shorter than most of ours. So let's dive into this instruction from this place of maturity. John, uh, 1 John 2, uh, we're going to start in verse 18. Here is John, knows what matters most, one of the last people alive who saw Jesus face to face, and he writes this, children. It is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So he's using this phrase, the last hour. Now that's an idiom that New Testament writers would use to describe the period of time when Jesus came the first time and when Jesus comes the second time. And between that is the last hour. It's obviously not an actual hour. Uh, it also is not necessarily a short amount of time. But what they're describing here is like the next thing that happens is the final thing that happens. Jesus comes back again. Um, now, uh, so far, the last hour has lasted about 1,988 years. I did the math, uh, roughly. Um, he says one of the things that's going to be true during that period of time is there are going to be these people that he calls antichrists. Or like the, the more modern word would be heretics. We don't use this word antichrist a lot because that phrase has been co-opted a little bit by Christian subculture to, to refer to kind of end time stuff. What John, though, is literally saying is these are people who are denying the true identity of Christ and teaching that. 
right? That's, that's what he is talking about here. Now, you may know John also wrote the book of Revelation where he uses the phrase antichrist to refer to like this figure who is opposed to the things of Jesus. That's not what he's using it for here. What he's talking about is just this very simple thing that happens all the time. He's talking about normal people who are opposing Jesus. Now, this is very important. Like, like, listen to me for just a minute. I mean, listen to the whole thing, but especially like for the next minute, okay? 220 years after John wrote this, uh, a man named Constantine, who was the emperor of Rome, converts to Christianity. And at that point, he issues the Edict of Milan, which is a famous, very important piece in history. Uh, and the Edict of Milan makes Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. About 10 years after that, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. And at that point, the theology of Christianity and the power of the empire, the state, kind of get merged into one. And at that point is when we started calling people who oppose or deny the identity of Jesus heretics. And it didn't start right away. But eventually... We started like looking at the emperor and we started being like, hey, do you see these, these people don't believe in Jesus? Is it okay? Like, can we kill them? Is that, is that okay with you? And the emperor was like, yeah, why don't we kill them? And, and we started killing people who misunderstood who Jesus was. This is why I bring that up. It is very important that we realize John is writing from a moment hundreds of years removed from that moment, okay? So John is writing in a time when he could not even conceive of theology and the state merging. That was an utter disaster for us because every time political power is merged with religious power, it is an utter disaster every single time. John wasn't thinking like that, and John was not trying to persecute heretics. He was writing at a time when we believers had zero power, and what was actually happening was the people with all the power, the Greeks and the Romans, uh, were very good at appropriating cultures. And so they'd hear about this Jesus thing, and they'd say, you know, that Jesus sounds an awful lot like this pagan god I used to worship. So maybe they're the same. Yeah, Jesus and this God are the same. Or they'd say, hey, this gospel thing, it sounds an awful lot like this philosopher that I once heard or this ancient philosopher in Greece that I read. And so actually the, the gospel and this ancient philosophy, those are the same. And so they started repeating these things about Jesus that were actually untrue. And the apostles, guys like John, Paul, Peter, they took it upon themselves to basically say to other Christians, listen, guys, I was there. This thing that they're saying about Jesus, that's not true. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. That's not how it happened. Those things that they're saying about Jesus are actually anti to Jesus. But it's important to realize that John is not persecuting anyone with these statements. He had zero power. And so there was zero persecution going on of the people who said this. Even though it sounds pretty intense what he's saying, he's not attacking unbelievers because he had no power to do that. He is just fighting to hold on to the core of the faith, which is Jesus. And he's saying, guys, people are telling you things about him, and it's not exactly true. And so, like, can I just clarify, this is what is true of him. He says, I need to tell you something about these people. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And so he's saying, listen, these are people who at one point were connected with us. That's why they know about Jesus. But over time, they revealed they're not exactly the same. One of the things that we as modern believers consistently misunderstand about the Bible is its context. Um, like it's natural, and I understand why we do it, I do it sometimes too, but we, we naturally assume that when the Bible was written, it was written in a time when there was an agreed upon set of beliefs that constituted Christianity. That is not in fact true. That's not true about the first century. There were some core beliefs, like especially about who Jesus was and why he came, and that's what the apostles kind of stewarded. But I want you to remember that these were churches that were separated by like sometimes days, weeks, or months of travel, right? And, and so they didn't have like the whole New Testament. They maybe had a gospel and maybe had a, a letter here, and that created enormous diversity of belief. And so early on, it wasn't like there was Christianity. It's more like there were Christianities, and there was a lot of different interpretations of stuff. And if you had a problem or a question like, hey, why do we baptize people? That seems pretty important. Are we sure we know what we're doing when we're baptizing people? It's not like you could hop on a Zoom call with the apostles and be like, hey, what's baptism about? No, you would like send a letter and it's like, hey, maybe we'll hear back next year after the winter, you know, uh, like it was that sort of timeline that was attached to this. And as you would imagine in that sort of environment, there was tremendous diversity of belief. And so the early believers really had no choice except to do what John is encouraging to them to do, to trust the Holy Spirit within them and do the best with what they knew. And John says, you know the truth. That's where he points them. He says, you have this anointing of the Holy Spirit. You have knowledge about what is at the core of our faith. And so you can discern, is this from us? Is this from Jesus? Or is it something else? And he's saying, trust that, lean into that. And then he hits them with what I think is the sole reason that he wrote this book. And you could disagree with me on that. But I, I really think this is what this letter is about. Verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will be able to abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now, in broad strokes, I mean, he says, he used the Antichrist word here again, but he's, he's talking about heretics, heresy. In broad strokes, a heretic is just anyone whose teaching is contrary to the teachings of the true church. Like, that's the definition of the word. The problem is, historically, there was a time when those in power put that label on anyone who believed the sun was the center of the solar system, which it is, Right? There was a time when those in power put that label on uh, guys like Luther and Calvin because they were attempting to bring health to an unhealthy institution. And before we feel too sympathetic for Luther and Calvin, they put that label on plenty of people too, like the Anabaptists. Calvin had somebody run out of Geneva, his hometown, because the guy suggested that the Song of Solomon was a love poem, which it is. 
right? And so historically, this is the truth of this word heretic. The word was applied to anyone who questioned the perspective of those who held power, right? That's how we've used this word. That is not what John is doing. That is not what John is doing here. That's what the church started doing much later. And honestly, I mean, let's just be totally honest about this. It it still happens. I know churches that will call you a heretic if you do not believe in literal seven-day creation. I know churches that will call you a heretic, and like this is so obscure. If you are wrong about when Jesus' second coming happens in relationship to the millennial reign of Christ, they'll call you a heretic. This is a recent, like just a couple weeks ago, I was reading an article that was published in a major like publication online, and it was by a Southern Baptist preacher who uh, was angry that Beth Moore, who left the Southern Baptist church recently, and he wrote this. He said, Beth Moore is a heretic because she brags about preaching to men, which she doesn't, and if she doesn't repent of that heresy, we don't want her in the Southern Baptist church anyway. Could we step back for a second and just make, like, let's just acknowledge this about our people, our little tribe here. We have way overused this word. We have used it in situations where we ought not use it at all. And I think what that points us to is this very important truth. It is incredibly tempting for each of us to declare ourselves the true church with whom all theology must be aligned. And that's what historically people in power have done. This is not how the apostles thought of themselves. This is not what was happening in the New Testament. Heresy in the New Testament was not about disagreeing with those in charge. That was allowed. Heresy was about challenging the identity that Jesus was the Christ. Like, notice just how focused John's statement is. He is not saying, hey, uh, you know, everyone should embrace everything I believe. That's the true teachings of the church. He's also not saying, Antichrist believed the wrong thing about creation, about the end times, and about gender roles. He's not saying that sort of thing. He's also not saying, Antichrist, disagree with me. They challenge me. They send me emails after I preach and tell me how I'm wrong, and they're the Antichrist. That is not what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Antichrists are challenging that. That's what they're doing, and that's all they're doing. They're challenging the idea, the deity of Jesus. They're challenging the humanity of Jesus. They're challenging the sufficient, salvific work of Jesus. We have to understand, this is what the apostles worried about. The the apostles had this really complicated job of kind of stewarding this thing when it just got off the ground. There was all sorts of issues in the early church. Crazy, crazy things were happening Um, They had to deal with it wisely. They'd argue about it. They'd wrestle through this stuff. And what's amazing is you can even see in the New Testament in the first 50 years of Christianity, their perspective as a group changes over time as they wrestle with these issues. It's beautiful. But what they would not bend on and would not budge on is this truth. Jesus is the Christ. And what that means is he is fully God His deity, they would not bend on. It means he is fully human. We're going to talk about this next week. That was an incredibly big issue in the first century. He was fully human. 
And he alone made a way to God. His sacrifice was sufficient. We don't add anything to it with our good deeds. We don't add anything to it with our smart ideas. We don't add anything to it. It was just him. He is sufficient. Jesus is the Christ. They would bend on a lot of things, and they would address a lot of things, but that was the thing that they protected with their lives. In the 90s AD, John had seen every other apostle killed for that. Not for some secondary issue, but for that. John's saying, that's what you've heard from the beginning. That is what abides in you. And because it abides in you, you're going to be just fine. You're going to figure out the rest. That's the benefit I think we get from John having lived some life. He's got some maturity. He's not writing about everything that might matter. He is writing about the thing that matters more than everything. Jesus is the Christ. He's saying, listen, you're only an antichrist heretic if you get that thing wrong. Jesus is the Christ. But if you affirm Jesus, if you believe in that, then listen, you could be wrong about literally everything else you believe, and eternally you'll still be okay. That's what John was teaching. That's the centrality of Jesus for John. You know, these days we fight about everything, everything. John just fought about Jesus. And I think, as Susie pointed out, there was a day when that wasn't true, like he would have fought about everything. But gosh, he's mature now. And maturity, if you do it right, will shrink the number of essentials to just the core. That's maturity. Now he ends uh, this part with this encouragement. Verse 26, I love this. I love that he added this. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And I love this because he's telling them a couple things. He's saying, listen, would you all be confident about what you have? Yeah, there's people trying to deceive you, but you're going to be okay. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, the anointing of the Spirit. He can clarify everything to you. Trust it. Lean into it. And then he says this. He says this thing about you don't have any need for someone to teach you. I think what he's saying there is just this really simple admonition. Don't overly trust human teachers. As a human teacher, can I just tell you how important that is? Don't overly trust human teachers. We all do this. We all need to be cautioned from it. Uh, You should not hand your discernment over to anyone. Like, please do not do that with me. Like, don't do that with anyone. Please don't hand your discernment over to anyone. Hold everything a human being, a fallible human being tells you about the God of the universe. Hold all of it a little bit loosely, right? Test it. Test it against what the Holy Spirit says, against what the scriptures say, against uh, the character of Christ. And I know like that's a a little bit harder work. He's talking about abide in him. You're going to have to like stay connected to him. You're going to have to do the work on yourself. It takes study. It takes thought. It takes humility. But here's the point. God did not put his Holy Spirit in you so you could turn around and blindly trust someone like me. Right? Can I get an amen on that? 
So I said this in the first service, and afterwards, one of our elders, Corey LaPlante, comes up to me, and he goes, I don't think you need to worry. <laughs> I was like, if you ever wonder what our elders do, that's what they do. They just keep me in check. Um, yeah, God did not put his Holy Spirit in you so that you could blindly trust anyone. That's not the point. Like, just don't do that. He also didn't put his Holy Spirit in you so you could arrogantly ignore everyone, right? So there's a balance there. But John, he's given us permission to think for ourselves. That's what he's encouraging them to do, and it's beautiful. Don't trust spiritual leaders who don't do that for you. So what do we do with all this? Talk of antichrists and heretics and um, all this stuff. Well, I want to encourage you, these next two weeks, we're going to keep diving into the subject because it is like fascinating. He's going to attack all these specific heresies and deal with these issues that were big deals in 90 AD. Um, And like if you're into that sort of thing, it is fascinating. And apparently I am because I really enjoy, I've been wearing out everyone on our staff just talking about all this nerdy stuff about church history. But for today, can I just end you with a, a, a simple thought that I think is guiding John and it could guide all of us. It's just like a framework for all theology, all doctrine, all the thoughts that we have about God. Here it is. Everything matters, but also, Nothing matters as much as Jesus. You hear it? Everything matters, but also nothing matters as much as Jesus. Everything matters. Like, I want you to hear me say that. Everything matters. I'm not trying to minimize issues of theology. Theology is great. You want to discuss creation, end times, gender roles. I love those discussions. Let's talk about it. We don't have to stop caring about secondary issues to live with the sort of perspective that John is talking about. We just have to begin and end those discussions with this awareness that nothing matters as much as Jesus. And may we not discuss things in ways that minimize that truth. That's what's essential. Let me give us three practical suggestions to embrace this idea. Everything matters, but nothing matters as much as Jesus. First, here's a suggestion. Apologize to everyone you've wrongly called a heretic. (laughs) Um, You may have never used that word, um, but if you found yourself in a disrespectful disagreement with another believer over an issue that is not primarily about Jesus being the Christ then you may have gone too far, right? I say that as someone who goes too far sometimes, and I have to go back and say, I'm so sorry. I, I overdid it, didn't I? And it's good for your soul to apologize. You don't have to, like, burn a heretic to go too far, right? We do it all the time. We go too far. Here's the point. Jesus is the Christ. Draw a circle around that, and every idea that falls outside of that circle be respectful, be humble, and be kind. That's what John's teaching us. If you haven't been, pick up the phone, call the person and say, hey, I might have disrespected you in a way that actually minimizes the center of our faith. It's good for our souls. Here's a second suggestion. How do we live this out? Everything matters, but also nothing matters as much as Jesus. Fellowship with those with whom you agree about Jesus. If you meet someone who thinks, yeah, Jesus is God, and and Jesus was human, and the only way for me to be right with God is to trust Jesus, 
If you meet someone who thinks that, that person, no matter what else they believe, that person is your brother or your sister, right? You agree on the most important truth in the universe. Let that be the foundation of your relationship with others. And can we just observe that that group that would agree on that is much bigger than our little tribe here, right? It's much bigger. And so our fellowship needs to be much more diverse than just the little tribe that we have greater agreement with. And that kind of brings me to the third way that we practice this. Everything matters, but also nothing matters as much as Jesus. Brothers and sisters, believers, family of God, can we all just chill? <laughs> just, just chill. Just chill. Are the kids still saying that? Is that a thing? Chill? No. I put it on the screen because some of y'all might want to take a picture of it so you can remember to do it later. Um, chill. Is this fair to say the world around us has lost the ability to maintain relationships while disagreeing with another person? Is that fair? I think this is also fair. They learned it from us, right? We Christians, we've been at the top of the heap for a long time in Western culture. And, you know, we stopped burning heretics a while ago. You know what we do now instead? We just call one another a heretic, and then we walk down the street, and we start a new church. And I suspect that the world has gotten a little tired of watching Christians who agree that Jesus is the Christ but cannot worship him in the same room because of a secondary issue. And perhaps that's why they don't listen to us anymore. Because our lack of perspective has maybe revealed that we actually don't even know what matters most. And they can get that anywhere. That's not what John is doing here. He's not picking fights. That's not what the apostles did in the New Testament. They weren't trying to address everything. They were trying to protect challenges to the center of the faith, Jesus. And when things fell outside of that, their encouragement was, hey, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I looked this up in my Greek Bible. In the original Greek, what's fascinating about this text is it's just one word. It just says chill. That's, that's what Paul wrote. Remember what I said about don't trust everything a human says? Now's a chance to practice that. Um, we as believers, we have broken fellowship with each other so much, I think it reveals that we don't, a lot of us know what matters most. And I think the world has just lost interest. And if we do not capture or recapture our ability to keep first things first and chill out a little bit about the rest, I'm not sure we will ever recapture the power of true biblical Christianity that's centered on Jesus. John says, Jesus is the Christ. That and only that is the core. And you know, all the, all the other stuff matters, but nothing matters as much as that. Jesus was fully God. He was fully human. He alone is the way that we can be right with God. He's not trying to pick a fight. He's trying to end a fight. He's saying, you know what the core of this thing is. You know that's the center. You know that that is primary. Hang on to that really tightly. In maturity, it is staying focused on what matters most. And by converse, immaturity, 
is allowing secondary issues to drive wedges in relationships. Can we be people of maturity? So God, we come to you uh, just confessing we have gotten it wrong. We have missed the boat as your people. We've picked fights where we shouldn't and we have broken fellowship in ways that must grieve your heart. Lord, we are saved because of Jesus Christ. Would you show us how to keep that in the center of our hearts and our minds? Keep that in the center of our worldview and our framework. Keep that in the center of our relationships. That's what we need is this sort of centrist faith that is focused on you. There's power in that, Lord. And we want to walk in that power and not be distracted by all the arguments. And so we surrender and we submit ourselves to the center of this faith. Thank you, Jesus.